Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week of Invisible Truths. I'm joined this week by Liz Getman, who is in the Joy Revolution class with Brooke and I. And so that's how she and I connected. Uh, Liz is a teacher, trainer, and community builder who facilitates collective joy and transformation across the globe. Um, She does yoga retreats, yoga service, and spiritual guidance, as well as a host of other things. Liz also has a podcast that she co-hosts. Um, and she is just kind of a, from what I understand, a globe-trotting yogi uh, healer, if you will. Um, so Liz, it is so great to have you on the show this week. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. And I have to say, like, I'm a, I'm a little nervous because normally I'm on the other side asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... This is a second time for me. The first time went pretty well, but we'll see how this one goes. Good. I'm sure this will go well. Is there anything that you'd like to add uh, about the work that you do or who you are? I mean, I, I think you pretty much covered it. I appreciate using the word um, healer. I think that's a strong mm-hmm. word and I don't often use it for myself. So um, yeah. I feel like it carries a lot of weight, but um, I guess if others choose to describe me that way, I'll take it, but I, I try to shy away from it and I think my work really lies in supporting others in their own healing journey. So um, whether that's through yoga, whether that's through um, service, um, so nonprofit work, or yeah, even our podcast, um, I hope that I can show up as sort of a guide to help people figure out, you know, what is their own healing journey. Every hero has an origin story. And I believe that we are all the heroes and the centerpieces of our own individual journeys. And so how would you describe your origin story? Sure. Well, thankfully, I think I have some practice since I've been writing it for the Joy Revolution, the class you just mentioned. Um, So actually, I had my call with Melanie, one of our coaches on Wednesday. So we'll see how that goes. Um, So my my origin story, um, when I was very young, I was a very happy, happy child. And um, like many of us had some traumatic experiences throughout my childhood and adolescence. And those really started um, with my brother and I've, my brother and I are at a place where I can really talk about this. So I feel, feel comfortable speaking about it. Um, He's given me permission. So my brother struggled with really bad bipolar disorder, manic depression, um, before doctors really knew what it was and how to treat it. And many times with manic depression and bipolar disorder, the the person suffering from it will target someone or something. And I became that target very young for my brother. And so I don't I don't necessarily tell people that I grew up in an abusive household, but I did. There were many times in my my childhood where I thought my brother would kill me if my other brother hadn't stepped in or if my parents hadn't stepped in. And so for a long time in my childhood, I really lived in fear for my life and um, in fear of being vulnerable. So there's some, there's specific moments in my life that I, my childhood, I can remember feeling that first um, sense of instinct or primal fear that, wow, if someone else wasn't here, I would probably be dead or really, really badly hurt. And I don't think my brother knew what he was doing. Um, and I think he was in between medications and my parents did such a good job trying to get him help and support. But again, it was before, you know, mental illness was still such a stigma. I don't even know if we use that phrase back then. Um, so this was like early nineties. And so 
when my brother moved out of the house, um, I found a boyfriend in high school who was also abusive, right? So this is my pattern. <laughs> and mostly psychologically and emotionally abusive, which my brother was as well, but there were a couple instances, you know, where he did get physically violent. And it took me a couple of years before I was able to break away from that. It, it felt comfortable, like, you know, it's kind of what I knew. And my freshman year of college, I finally got up the, the courage to break off, you know, break away from him. And because my pattern was sort of this place of pain and suffering. And the day after I broke up with my high school boyfriend, um, I started counting calories and I developed a, a really, really bad eating disorder. And that eating disorder was nearly fatal and nearly killed me many times, or I nearly killed myself, however you want to look at it. Um, it's kind of a complicated subject. Um, but I struggled with anorexia and bulimia and some sort of combination of the two for for about a decade. And um, the first five years of that were pretty, I, I was pretty close to death. Um, and and so that was, again, sort of my pattern, these three big stages of kind of pain in my life. And um, from there was sort of when I finally was able to... Um, you know, found a therapist, a nutritionist who, who were my healing guides. <laughs> Let's use that phrase. I, in my mid twenties, I started to find my power. Um, I found yoga. I found cacao, the plant medicine cacao, which was really instrumental in, in opening my heart and helping to save my life. And, um, and that's sort of where I feel like I had, you know, a, we call it a hero, healing guide, wherever, whatever phrase you want to use. We all sort of, if we're on this journey, we have a, a kind of rebirth in a way, I think. Um, and whether you use that term or not, there's some sort of big transformational point. And, and so my mid-20s is kind of when that happened and when I was able to sort of step away from that pain body and release it. And, um, and it's really been a huge part of my work now, right? So I work with people who are suffering from addiction and people who have gone through severe trauma. And that was really the 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 path behind my nonprofit work. So yoga service, um, I help run a nonprofit called Yoga Loka and it's really my big passion. Um, and we, our big vision is to transform mental illness into mental wellness. And that's a big vision. That's a big goal. Um, but we do that through yoga and through holistic health services. And, and that's really where I feel my, my big, my biggest purposes, um, besides traveling and retreats and all of that, it's this point of service and really helping to guide people back to divine love and truth. That was that was a very long answer. I've had much longer. Oh, okay, great. For me, it's probably I talked forever. Um, but you gave a really powerful um, backstory. It was, man, you touched on some deep pain and some deep wounds there um, that were very relatable, at least you know for me. And as you were talking, one of the one of the images that came to mind, you started talking about kind of that almost instinctual fear, you know, that you experience when you're in situations of extreme danger and you begin to learn to sense when that danger is coming, right? So you can feel it before it hits you. I'm wondering if you can talk about what that viscerally feels like for people, because I, I think when you get into that cycle, if it's, if it's a feeling or feelings you have lived with or grown up with and it's become part of your psyche, you may not even recognize it as something you don't have to feel. And so uh, I'm hoping that maybe if we can actually name some of the specificity of it, then people might realize, oh, they're talking about me or, oh, I'm feeling that too, you know? Yeah, I think that's really important. And then, um, you know, our, our work is in trauma-informed yoga, or there's a new phrase that I prefer. It's called healing-centered engagement. So mm. it's not labeling people as their trauma, right, but as a person who's gone through trauma. 
an important distinction, though it's pretty small. And and in that, which is the yoga that I offer or try to in all circumstances, um, is that many many people who have gone through trauma don't know what sensation feels like, right? They don't know, they don't even know what it means to to feel an emotion, right? And so we have this sense of numbness. And in, in yoga practice, especially for people who've gone through severe trauma, you know, I teach in the jail here and, and many people there, when, when you say, notice the sensation in your feet, maybe what the hell are you talking about? What does that even mean, right? And and so it's it's drawing, it's maybe offering cues around that as far as do you notice a temperature? Is it warm? Is it cold, right? Do you notice a tingling sensation as if someone were maybe tickling you? Um, and you have to be careful with, with visualization cues, right? Because they can be very triggering for people who've gone through trauma. But I think it's really getting down to that basic level of, of, of what sensation means first. Because um, I think for those of us who've gone through trauma, which is everyone, right? But especially people who are going through systemic trauma, maybe. Um, understanding what sensation even means is like the first step, right? And so from there, it's, it's helping people identify where in the body it's held. So in yoga practice, right, we use the, the chakra system. So there's seven major chakras, right? And and each relates to different, um, whether they're emotions, sensations, life experiences. And, and so it's helping people identify where in the body you're feeling that sensation. Right? And then from there, does it bring up a thought? From there, does it bring up an emotion? And, and then from there, are you able to let it go, right? Or are you able to start the process? I actually don't love the phrase, let it go. I mean, I think like there's like real deep digging we have to do before we can just like poof, let something go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think it's like starting that work around the inner processing um, it is really the practice. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about um, the, so I'm 31 and I've been unpacking the effects of my childhood trauma for actively for about a decade now. Um, and then off and on periodically before that. Uh, and it feels like each year I uncover new ways in which my trauma is manifesting or, or my trauma responses rather are manifesting in my daily life that I, I wasn't as aware of before. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, as, as you were talking, one of the, the images that came to my mind is uh, during times where I can sense conflict in a room, especially interpersonal conflict, whether I'm involved in it or not, it can be two of my friends, two strangers, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself getting triggered. And so for me, that means time seems to slow down. It means that my heart rate quickens, my muscles tense up, um, and my, my body is physiologically preparing for whatever I'm about to have to do. Usually in my mind, I'm preparing for a physical altercation. Like how am I going to either stop this or what am I going to have to do to keep myself safe uh, physically? Um, and so that's one of the instances in which I have noticed, and I, I didn't connect the dots until really hearing you talk just now, that that is a very specific trauma response. Mm-hmm. Just even the, the acute awareness of conflict and feeling it, uh, whether it involves me or not, that's, mm-hmm. that's, um, that's something that comes up for me anytime you know, that I sense tension in a room. Yeah, that's powerful and, and probably hard too. Um, I, I can imagine, like I know for me when things are, are triggering or um, some thought process, you know, process comes up, um, thought process comes up, like I might be having a, like a really good time with people, right? And then something happens and you feel this, this um, sensation, this response. For me, it's always, 
um, in what we call the high heart, right? Which is in between the heart and the throat chakras. So mm. I get this tension, this tightness, right? In mm -hmm. this upper part of my chest in between my throat and my heart where I feel like I can't breathe. And that might last with me for weeks at a time. Um, so still mm. a lot to, I'm 32 and <laughs> I feel like hopefully we have a lot of, <laughs> but I've been doing this work. I feel like I've been yeah. in and out of therapy since I was 10 and I'm still doing the work. So <laughs> yeah, same started at nine. Um, your gift, right? To have parents or, or guardians or whomever siblings who could offer us that. I mean, I see that as such, and that's really a big part of my hero story, not to interrupt you, but um, it's just like giving gratitude to the people who helped walk me on this path. Like, um, you know, we our, our work in yoga services, serving people at, you know, at the jail and the homeless shelter and many other places. And, and we always say that, you know, we're, we're just one step away from being homeless or in jail. Right? And I think that with myself and my own journey, you know, that I could have ended up there, but I'm, I'm a thin white middle-class woman, right. With privilege and thank God for my parents who had the, the mindset of like, okay, our kids need to go to therapy. We actually all need to go to therapy. <laughs> right? Not everyone has that, that opportunity. So I just, I always like to name that and just give gratitude to that. Mm. Uh, the idea of being a middle-class white woman with privilege, mm. how has that informed and impacted your uh, both your healing journey and the work that you're doing as a healing guide in the lives of others. I think you need to need to name it. Mm. Um, like if you're in this work, I think um, I'm super sensitive and and always struggling and wrestling. And I hope in a good way, you know, with the idea of appropriation, misappropriation, and 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 there's so many. There's actually a new podcast called. Um, uh, yoga is dead. <laughs> and oh, wow. So it's called white women killed yoga. Mm. Um, and, and it's a really powerful and yes, controversial podcast. It was like bringing up these topics that are so important. Right. And so I think for me, it's, it's first taking a step back and we, you know, we talk about this in social justice work anyway. Right. So those of us with privilege, whatever that means, um, is, is taking a step back and is showing up at the table when we're called. Right. And so I think, in yoga service, especially, we never want to be our organization. First of all, I should say is founded by a woman of color, but, um, you know, as someone who is not and has privilege and is, you know, a white woman, thin white woman, right. I look like the quote unquote yoga ideal. I'm super careful about mm -hmm. first stepping back and letting other people speak or invite me in, right. To call me in. Um, so I never want to be a white savior, like going into the homeless shelter, showing up with a bag of yoga mats. If it's not wanted, like if people first need a warm meal, yeah. right. If that's more important than, than sitting on a mat for an hour. And usually it is right. So it's usually both. It's not just one. Um, so I think for me, it's, it's first naming it and then going where I'm called and then um, really, you know, um, taking a step back and letting other voices that have been oppressed and marginalized speak first. And, and, and if I fit in that mm. circumstance in that circle somehow, then I'll go. And if I don't, then I offer the opportunity is meant for somebody else. Right. Um, yeah. so I'm really careful around all of those issues. And, and I, my husband and I laugh that every other week I have an existential crisis. <laughs> like, I'm not supposed to be doing this work. Like this is not me, right? I'm not. I'm. I'm contributing to the problem. I'm not helping anybody. And then I, you know, I, I pause and I work through it, and mm. it comes up in my chest, right? Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. let it out somehow. Um, but I think if we're not doing that, and and for yoga teachers out there like myself, like I think then we're doing a disservice to the practice, right? And and. Um, we're doing a disservice to other people and, and we're not really healing these, these long-term wounds that are part of lifetimes maybe. Right. Um, 
I guess that's sort of my process around it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I'm aware in my own life that there are many instances throughout the day where I begin to feel unsafe, not necessarily threatened, but you know, one of my lingering questions is always, am I going to fit? Am I going to be accepted? Um, are people going to just suddenly kind of believe me? Can they hold all of me? You know, all these, these questions. And those questions shape the way I approach relationships. Um, in, in a variety of ways. In fact, one of the things that I noticed, uh, I was reflecting on this afternoon, is how often I have the urge to escape relationships. Um, if I feel too, like too much is being asked of me, I like, it's, there's this almost guttural response. I feel it in my, um, I, I always forget what the chakras, if you count up or down, uh, but the solar plexus chakra, <laughs> uh, that the second, okay. Um, <laughs> So that's like where I feel it. And it's this like instinctive. Third, third sorry, everyone. Okay. <laughs> April is second, that's the third. Yeah, okay, so, so the third or solar plexus, wow, I can't talk, the third or solar plexus chakra. Yeah. Um, I, I feel it there and it's like this emotional or spiritual stiff arm that makes me just want to put as much distance as I can between me and the other person, be it a friend, a family member, or even my wife. Um, and, and it's one of the things that I am continually wrestling, wrestling with. And so this question of what do I do to feel safe hmm. comes up often for me, not as a reflection of what someone else is doing necessarily, but usually just as a recognition that, okay, this is a response for me. I don't think I have to feel this way and I don't have to react this way. How do I then manage it? So can you talk about what that process of feeling safe has been like for you? Yeah. Can I ask you a question first? Yes. Do you feel safe when you're by yourself? Oh, such a great question. I love <laughs> some side Sorry, note about me. Asking the question. <laughs> no, I am a question fanatic. I love a good question. Um, primarily because questions are the vehicles um, that I've traveled to under my own journey of self-discovery. Like without great questions, I would not be here. Um, and so I just respect and appreciate them so much. So thank you for that question. Yes. Yeah. Um, do I feel safe when I'm by myself? I can. I don't always. Um, when I, I say I can, meaning if I am intentional and conscious of it, and I'm in a space like the woods, for instance, so usually if I'm in nature, then I can get to a point where I, I feel safe. And, and feeling safe usually just means accepting the chaos that is happening within a lot of the times and recognizing that it, it doesn't have to overtake me and that it's, it's there and that can be okay. And it, it, in five minutes, it may not be there strongly or it may be stronger, but it'll ebb and flow. Sure. Um, but I, but there are other moments where I, I know I don't feel safe within myself and I, I have trouble even accepting uh, at least parts of myself, if not myself entirely. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm just always curious. So I know you asked me the, the question about safety and um, like for me in my own journey, oftentimes I feel really unsafe. I think like we're a little bit different. So um, I, my, one of my sort of habits is I need to be comforted or I need to be needed. Um, and so my journey, especially with an eating disorder that thrives on, um, isolation, right? Any addiction, right? Thrives on isolation and it's definitely an addiction. 
Um, like I think one of my coping mechanisms has been maybe not so much now, but I still see it in my relationships. Um, also, you know, with my friends, with my husband is like, I, well, I need you to comfort me and hold me and, and I need to feel like I'm needed. Um, and that becomes sort of, maybe that's different from you where you may, I don't know where you maybe retreat. Right. But for me, if I start to retreat, then that can be like triggery for my eating disorder. And so, um, so it's sort of, I don't know if I answered your question, but that just came up for me as far as like, it's a little bit different, but I think it's still around the same yeah. safety. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So for me, um, it is a little different. I have a lot of a, I'll call it a hero complex, but it's more than that. So during the years that I was abused, I was also the oldest child. And so I would take care of my siblings. I felt a responsibility to protect them. Sometimes I would discipline them or, or feed them. Like I acted unfortunately as caregiver at times. And so I developed this sort of complex, not only that I could be useful and find my value in providing safe spaces for others, but also um, that I had to go it alone. And so I kind of internalized the message that no matter what anyone else said or did, it all had to fall back on me. And so I have a tendency to both want to create space for others in a manner and frequency that's definitely not healthy and I'm getting better at, um, but also to kind of push everyone else out and, and never fully trust people because the internal tape just says, nah, bro, it's got to fall on you. Like this road is just yours. No one else is going to be there with you. You got to figure it out. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, all we have is ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And that I think is, is really scary. Like, like in yoga, we say like, it gets worse before it gets better. Like mm -hmm. in yoga, excuse my language, yoga fucks up your life actually, because it <laughs> shows you where you're suffering first, right? Like it helps you open up those energetic centers. And, and when you really sit with yourself, that's like the scariest thing. Right. And I think like that whole idea of this um, white women killed yoga podcast. There's a new episode called Vinyasa Yoga or Vinyasa Killed Yoga, right? It's because we're still moving, we're still going fast, right? So Vinyasa is a flow style practice. So mm. we're still hiding maybe from our stuff, right? And so when you can really, this was my healing practice was like when you got to sit there, sit in your poopy diaper, as one of my teachers likes to say. <laughs> and sit in it and smell it and look, investigate it. And like, and how can you start to unpack and clean it up? Or right, this is getting gross, but like, <laughs> let's scrap that imagery. But you know, it's only when you can be alone, right? And, and ultimately, you know, I think the, the yoga path is, is usually gone alone. And I say usually, cause part of there's different paths, right? And one of them is karma yoga and it's the yoga of service, right? And serving other people and it's working toward our collective good. Um, and so while that starts internally, um, one of my favorite quotes is my Ramana Maharshi, a famous teacher, um, your own self-realization is the greatest service you can render the world. And, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes. I think sometimes it gets clouded though. And then it becomes like this, becomes not self-care but selfish care right in that we're we forget the collective good so that we, so yoga practice is very much in, you know individual and we have to unpack our own stuff right um, but then at the same time it needs to be a collective unpacking and supporting each other long way of saying that's been part of my path and my practice as far as healing healing myself um, and finding a sense of safety too is not just within, but it's actually with other people. 
Yeah. Yeah. Most, most definitely. You, you mentioned, uh, smelling your poopy diaper, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that touches a little bit on the most recent podcast episode I released, um, in which I, I named that, at least for myself, I had to experience some sort of major disruption in life in order to really op- become open to the path that was going to be most fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And so, but but it's it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, and it's painful to to hold and to come face to face with those dark places, those those fiery places, those freezing places within us. I guess the first question is, when did you realize that that's actually where your work had to start? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I always, no matter how bad things were, I all like I always had pretty good self awareness. Um, even when I was suicidal, right? Like I was very aware. Like mm-hmm. I, in yoga practice, we talk about like being the observer. You step outside yourself and witness what's happening, right? And I think. For whatever reason, this has always this has been my path, and and so I've always been able to observe myself and observe others. And so, yeah, even when things were really bad, when I was very depressed and you know suicidal, ninety eight pounds, taking painkillers to numb myself, um, just like very very sick, I was always aware of that. Um, I, I like to say you ha- you have to break down to break through. Usually, not always, <laughs> but if you got a lot of stuff to unpack, then then you got to get to that bottom point sometimes, right? And I think for me, it, it came in college. It was my um, my sophomore year when I was um, I also call myself a recovering Type A. So when I was, <laughs> I when like I, that. yeah, when I was still a Type A, but like somehow still getting all A's, but but surviving on like 300 calories a day, like fainting by the time I got to class, like um, and many anorexics, like that's our that's the path. It's like it's usually perfectionists who who have to control everything. And so that includes our food. Um, and when things get really out of control, it gets worse. Right. So it's like, we're just not going to eat at all and restrict, restrict, restrict. But so it was my sophomore year when I was really, really sick. And I just like, remember so many nights being like real high on painkillers or whatever my doctors had prescribed me. Cause I was on so many different medications. And so I would abuse those and just numb myself and go to sleep. So I wouldn't have to eat whatever. And sitting in my shower and like sophomore year, just like always cold. Like, cause I was so sick. I had no meat on my bones. Like I was just always cold and, and, and numb and, and really wanting to die. Um, so my parents gave me an ultimatum. Like, again, I give gratitude my, to my parents. Um, I still got all A's that semester, right? Somehow. Of course. Um, yeah. I, which is I really, I think again, a lot of people in that, that story, the same thing, but, um, you know, they said, we're going to take you out of school. Like you're going to have to come home and go into an inpatient program. Um, and I told them like, no way, there's no way I'm doing that. I I'll commit to getting better. And I think I half-assed it at first. Um, but that was enough to like start the path, like start the journey. Right. So I started seeing a therapist twice a week and, um, the agreement was like, she could talk to my parents anytime. Um, I was, I wasn't a minor, but I agreed to that because they were going to pull me out of school and, um, and she was helpful to help like keep me going. Um, so that was like my first kind of breakdown point. The, the second actually happened. I'm very close to my dad. Um, I graduated college. I got married and my husband and I were going to start this whole life together. And then and the second kind of like big breakdown in my life happened. My dad um, had a stroke and um, was in a coma and I was in training for a job and I had to fly home and um, we didn't know if he was going to live. And um, my dad was raising my nephew, like family was 
yeah, dysfunction, you know, whatever role of dysfunction. But like my dad was raising my one and a half year old nephew at the time. So my husband and I just out of college, never really wanting kids, started raising my nephew and had to move home, like slept in my twin bed for my childhood. And there were like eight of us under one roof and just like chaos. Right. And so again, addiction, right. Thrive, like can be really triggered on chaos. So that's when the eating disorder got even worse. Like I, um, started, that was when I started binge eating, um, just real, real bad. And so while my dad was almost dying, I was almost dying. And at the same time, like raising my nephew and, So again, it took like family stepping in and saying like, Liz, what are you doing? Like, thank God I had them to just like hold me accountable, but, but to take care of me when I couldn't take care of myself and I just couldn't um, take care of my nephew. And so I finally found this incredible therapist, um, Pat Duffy, who helped save my life. Um, like was my healing guide. Honestly, this, this woman, um, helped me identify all these patterns I've named throughout this whole talk we're having and just help save my life for this first six months of therapy with her. I saw her once a week. I cried. I sobbed the whole time. And it's like, I had just been holding all of that in my whole life. In fact, after I broke up with my high school boyfriend, I made a verbal commitment that I wasn't going to cry ever again. Like I'm like, I'm not going to cry ever again. I'm going to be numb to pain. No one's ever going to hurt me again. Right. Many of us have said that I'm sure in some capacity or another. And it took me one session with Pat to just open up and then six months every, once a week the floodgates would be open and that was really like that was really the start that was really the start so all praise to pat <laughs> i did a lot of work too but <laughs> all praise to pat, praise yes. to pat. Um, i don't know i don't know if you're gonna to this pat but thank you um, yeah yeah, I really give a lot of gratitude to the people along the way, you know, who helped. And I mean, I've done a lot of the heavy lifting, you know, and especially now that I'm an adult, right? It's like, I feel like we're kind of, now it's up to us. Like, also, you're going to be a father, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like a whole other ball game. I don't, I have two dogs, but like, it's like, okay, my parents are still there, but it's like, great, Liz, you got to keep, you got to keep going, got to keep pushing. I, I want to name from one um, survivor to another and appreciation for, for your, your resilience and, and your fight. Um, I'm sure you hear that before when you don't tell these stories to get that name, but I believe it's really important to name. I love and I'm jealous of the fact that when you met Pat, you were able to just kind of, it sounds like release because that is something that is so difficult for me. Those that know me and know me well, um, and I'm, you've probably picked up on this somewhat in Joy Rev. Know that I, I'm not necessarily tightly wound, but I present as very, very put together. Um, and are you still a type A? N- no, I'm almost as type B as they come. I oh, think. Okay. <laughs> I think that's part of your journey too. Your- <laughs> the definition. Um, <laughs> but I, you know how Barack Obama has like the calm, cool, and collected persona. Uh huh. That's like my persona oh, to a T. Yeah. Yeah, um, not that there's nothing going on inside, but it rarely ever, if ever, gets shown externally to the point where I honestly, not even sure how to let it be shown externally, even if I wanted it to be. Well, can I interrupt? So can I interrupt you real quick? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I remember like when I messaged you while we're on the, like, um, on the, that, that session that we were on, because like, I totally recognize that because that used to be me. Right. And so like a lot of the people I work with are, um, people who haven't started the unpacking process. Like, and so people who are just like this rock solid, like, I don't, I'm not going to show emotion or I don't know how, I don't know how to start. Right. Cause I've been through so much trauma. Right. And so I remember sending you a message. Cause I remember like recognizing that and be like, Oh, 
I've been there before. Like I get it. And, and still to this day, when things get bad, I mean, I hibernate in my shell and I'm much better about talking about it, but I tend to shroud and I don't cry and I builds up in my chest and I can't breathe. And, um, so I get it. And I, I, it's really hard and it's hard in this work. I don't know if it is for you, but I think like that vulnerability piece, I think is really hard. Yeah. The, the hardest part, the hardest part used to be for me naming my emotions. I, I couldn't do that for the longest time. And I'm now at a point where I'm, I'm better. I'm, I like, if I were greater myself, I'd probably get like a C plus B minus on most days, which is much better than I used to be. like, Pretty good. man, I used to be an F consistently. That's above average. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's all I need. Uh, and so, so like, that's great. But the phase of my life I'm at now is the unlearning of old uh, habits and patterns and, and the casting off of old patterns. And that that's the, the newest challenge. And so not that I don't want to appear as calm, cool and collected. I think that's necessary sometimes but I don't it doesn't have to be the way I am all of the time like when I'm in my counseling sessions I cannot shut it off you know and so like but I, I need to be able to shut it off to some degree to do the work well internally and so that's one of the things I'm learning is how to how to balance and how to it's, it's about trust for me how do I how do I get to, to a point where I can trust that I'm in a completely safe space and just show that I'm affected by whatever, you know, is going on internally. My, my counselor had wonderful imagery. Um, she said, you know, Ben, I was thinking about you this week. I was, I was on the Monon and, uh, which is a trail in Indianapolis. And she goes, I looked out and I saw a duck swimming on the water, a mallard. And she's like, and I, I noticed that on the surface, the duck looked just calm, you know, and chill, like nothing was bothering it. But I knew that underneath the surface, its feet were paddling really rapidly <laughs> to keep it moving. And she's like, that reminded me of you. Like on the surface, you're calm and chill. But underneath those feet are going crazy. And that's completely accurate. I love that. I totally relate to it too. Well, I had another question pop up. Because uh-huh. you said that like you don't, I don't remember your exact words, but like that you, you open up when you know it's safe, right? Or something like that. <laughs> I'd like to. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, you said something around like you need to know it's safe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, what if I were to say like, it's never going to be safe, like a hundred percent safe. <laughs> My subconscious would be like, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> I already know that it's never. <laughs> but like, can you do the work anyway? Like, is that the. Like I know in certain spaces, like my counselor's office, it's safe enough. Enough. Sure. Yeah, you know, like being safe doesn't mean that no harm is possible. Like that's unrealistic, but it means I don't have to be my own savior in every moment of every day. You know, like I, I can take the cape off and put the Clark Kent glasses on, and just chill. Um, by the way, how did no one know that it was Superman? <laughs> I mean, it makes no sense. <laughs> I thought you were Superman. Well, the way like Mark and Melanie talk about you sometimes makes you sound like Superman. That's because that's like, it's a mode that I can't shut off. Like, it's a great mode to have, but it's... Does this podcast help? Like, because you're talking about some of like, your trauma you've been through. I feel like that helps you? Yes and no. I can, I can talk about it and I can hold space for others. But the point I'm at now, like, you know how when you first start the work, it's just a matter of like drilling down and there are always more layers to uncover, right? Endless onion. Yes. And so I am, I've made a lot of progress in the onion. The point I'm at now is just literally being in, being able to 
to be the nine-year-old boy that should have been able to cry but didn't feel safe enough to, you know, in certain spaces. Yeah. Like that, that's where I'm trying to, I, I need to give him permission to cry. And he, he takes it on occasion, but I like to help, help him be able to do that more. Yeah. Have you, it sounds like you have like done some inner child work. Yes, 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 yes. That is so huge. And Yeah, not easy. No, not at all. That's actually, um, like for me, it's, um, that's how I start my, my story for the joy rev is like talking about, there's this photo of me. Um, it's on probably almost, it's on all my social media pages. And so there's this photo of me when I was like three or four, I was a very, um, and I liked, I like to name this cause it's part of my story of like anorexia. I was like a very, um, healthy, like round child. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like I, I just love to eat and I, um, I was real, real blonde and tanned and, um, and like my belly's just popping out of my bathing suit and I'm in the ocean and my arms are like outspread. Right. And I'm in this like bright glitter bathing suit. I loved bright colors and I'm just like opening my arms to the world and I'm smiling like so big. And my mom always would say like, if you get emotional, my mom would always say like, that was you. Like that was, that was mm. Lizzie. And I was Lizzie. Right. And, and it took me so long to be able to like, connect back to her right because just a couple years later is when things started with my brother and so when I look at that photo I now I feel joy but for so long I would feel sadness and I couldn't even like look at it because I was like who is that right who is that and it took me a long time and like for me and you know for some people this is going to be real woo-woo and like not for them um like for me it was like writing Lizzie like letters like and writing her poems and like it's going to be hard and um but you're going to be okay and you're going to come out of it unharmed and you're allowed to be round and, and like allowed to eat and be loud and wear bright colors and, and to actually write those things and give myself permission um, was really, really helpful for me. That is so incredibly beautiful. <laughs> and I have, and I don't, I mean, I don't have a problem with woo woo to begin with, but I don't think that's woo woo at all. Um, I've I've done it myself. I mean, that was kind of the the starting point for me of inner child work. Is I remember being in counseling and just seeing the inner child for the first time. I saw two different versions of him that were kind of playing out and and almost managing my life. Um, and so to for me, it was doing meditative exercises where I imagined kind of interacting with him. Um, and and I think I've written him uh, at least maybe one letter or something. But no, that that interaction with the inner child is, is so important. In fact, once I saw it within myself, I could almost see it in other people, like where, where the inner child work is needed. And it does, like I'm, I, I feel the emotion rising up now. It's a, it's a, it's a sadness, a sadness for myself, a sadness for others at what has been stunted at what um, has been lost, not because it can't be recovered, but just an acknowledgement that there was a loss that took place, you know, and, and that loss deserves to be mourned. And I think that feels like the crux or at least part of the foundation of inner child work. It's mourning the loss, you know, of safety, of innocence, of, 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 of whatever, so that you can get to that point. It's almost like whatever was lost is the barrier that prevents us from, from reaching our inner children at some point, you know? That was beautiful. I think it's absolutely right. And I, and I think it's when you can, I mean, I think that's probably why you're, well, I, I know you're good at your work now having this conversation, but like, <laughs> well, you're probably so good at your work is because you can see that in other people, you know, and I think, um, 
And I think like creating safe space, right? And so much of this conversation around safety is, is nothing more than just sitting with someone and letting them be exactly who they need to be in that moment. Like for me, that's really powerful to name that when I'm teaching, like mm. whether it's a quote unquote trauma informed population or not, because again, we've all been through trauma. Yeah. It's like just you're welcome here just as you are. You know, and I taught a class today and the person cried the whole class. Like, and it was, and it was beautiful and painful and like vulnerable. Right. And it's, but like, you don't need to add all all these bells and whistles around how people are supposed to feel or not. And um, yes, there's that underlying joy and bliss within each of us and divine love within each of us. But if right in this moment, you're really sitting in the poopy diaper, like that's that's beautiful too. And I'm going to sit with you. And I think that's like all it is, right? That's all it is. And, you know, actually you first asked me to be on this show to talk about identity and my broken arm. Right. And, but I just thought about it again because you were talking about mourning the inner child, like the loss, right. That we like that I lost most of my childhood, right. Because of my relationship with my brother. And I did have to mourn that and, and really feel sad for Lizzie. Right. And, um, when I broke my arm, which no cast now, Woo! Uh, little by little, not so much mobility, but I'm so happy to be out of that cast. <laughs> the summer in a cast is not great, let me tell you. Um, but I actually, it was one of my friends who's a therapist, Carrie, um, you know, said to me, you, it's okay to mourn, like mourn that you like grieve your arm right now. Like you're sad because you can't do all these things that you could do and you don't know what your arm's going to look like when it comes out of that cast and you don't know who you're going to be and how is that going to change your identity and it did and for the better of course like I think there's always whether it's a blessing in the moment or a lesson right it's always going to get to that place of blessing in some sense is what I believe and um and it was and I learned so much about how I want to show up in the world and the work I want to do and I need to take not do so much right (laughs) I do a lot and I need to slow down and um and it took, maybe it took breaking my arm in that way, but I had to, I had to grieve that loss of identity that like, I couldn't show up and be the teacher for my, I couldn't even teach. Right. And I, and I, and I couldn't practice like, right. My practice was very different. Right. And the doctors tell me it might be a year before I can do downward dog. I don't believe them. <laughs> that's what they tell me. And that was really hard at first. And again, I had to kind of grieve that of like, wow, my, that's so much of my life. So what's my life going to look like now? And such a surrender process, right? It is. And that's, you know, the, the second question that I sent you um, was how you had been experienced being broken by your arm and how you've been broken open. <laughs> broken um, open yeah. And that was the, at the time that I wrote that, it was kind of a new understanding that I was coming to in my own life of, you know, I, I often talked about feeling broken myself, but I, I recognized that in the breaking, there's also an opening, right? And almost like, a painful invitation into a new way of being. And and the scary part is that you don't know what your identity will be like, you know, when you're being broken open. You you honestly sometimes aren't sure if or how you will survive. I, I want to know that as I'm saying this, I'm not necessarily talking about situations of extreme abuse or even life and death situations, right? It, it's hard for me to name that there's beauty in a child being beaten to within an inch of their life, right? No. Um, and so I'm not necessarily referring to those situations. I'm thinking more about as I'm looking back now and recovering from my own experience of child abuse and neglect, I still feel that brokenness inside. Um, or as I learn to lean in and face the, the darkness uh, within as I 
learn to live with newly diagnosed clinical depression, right? That can feel like being broken or being weighed down, but it's also an invitation to a, a new and, and for me, a deeper way of being, a deeper way of existing, a deeper way of moving through the world that is really rich, um, but hella uncomfortable as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I imagine that, again, that helps you show up for other people too, and, you know, and that, you know, when you gain even just like a little bit of clarity around it, it just opens the door to, like you said, something else. And so, so many people said to me when I broke my wrist, they're like, well, Liz, you offer this accessible, like all humans practice for everyone. They're like, now you're going to be able to teach people who have wrist issues. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. I'm like, damn it. I don't want to hear that right now. I'm in the hospital. <laughs> but pretty soon after I was like, yeah, that's so true. And like, and now, you know, wanting to go to a class and realizing that there's really no class for me at the moment. Like I can go to a yin, a gentle restorative class, but like, I'm not sure how many people in town in Gainesville could teach me. I know there are some, but I, I think it would take my own like learning. Like how can I do a full practice without a downward dog? Yeah. That's like, foundational. It, it is, but it doesn't have to be like, right. then there's that question too. And so, um, you know, I, on, on our show, we in, interviewed, um, Jeevana Heyman who, um, who started accessible yoga, which is now an international nonprofit. And, Actually, our nonprofit here in Gainesville just got a, um, a grant to bring his team here to train us, which is like super exciting, awesome. um, you know, but it was just really interesting after talking with him for so long and then having this experience. And he actually was one of the first people to just say to me, like, let me know how I can guide you to support your practice. And like, mm -hmm. and that was just really, really sweet. I had a lot of people say to me, like, well, the universe is telling you to slow down. The universe is telling you, you need to not do so much. And I was like, can I decide what the universe is telling me? <laughs> Why do you get to decide? Like, can we just take a minute, you know? But it was like those people who just were like, and this is the question I always say to people. It's like, how can I support you right now? Be as you are, be a mess. Again, my friend Carrie would be like permission to be clunky. And I would offer that to you. Like give yourself permission to be clunky. Yeah. And, um, like being a little messy. I have some friends, we call ourselves the messy friends and we're just, we're just always a little messy. Like there's always a stain somewhere. We're always like tripping and or breaking our wrists or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like giving yourself permission. And so it was the people who just showed up like, like Jeevan, it's like, how can I support you as you're working through these big questions of identity shift, right? Or like, can't do anything for a couple of weeks. Like that's really yoga, right? Is being in stillness anyway. So there's the real power of the practice. Yes. Yes. A lot of lessons, a lot of lessons. That the permission to be a met. Thank you. I received that. Yeah. Uh, another area of growth that I'm leaning <laughs> into. <laughs> and I owned uh, it. I was like, yeah, I'm a kind of messy. Yeah. All right. And it's okay. And it's okay. And it gives other people permission to be messy. Like yeah. when I was growing up, when I was in middle school, I had a group of like kids can be mean, right? And girls, especially, I think we can be really mean. And of course there's so much to unpack around that. And then we don't need to go into it. It's a whole other show, but, um, you know, I remember being like ostracized and even I like, well, I roll at this. Cause I think many people are listening like, well, that's not something to like be sad about, but I was ostracized because people would say, well, Liz is so perfect, like, and put together. Right. So me, I don't know if you can relate to that, but so I felt like really lonely a lot of times because people didn't want to be my friend because they thought I had it all together. Meanwhile, I'm at home being abused by my brother. Right? And so 
like that was the shell that I projected, but I think like when that happens and when kids say that and even adults, adults say that, right? Well, look at this, this perfect, look at this great guy, Benjamin Tapper. He's got all his stuff together. He's so good. He's got a podcast, right? Can have yeah. be like, but you're not allowing that person permission to be human. And that's, that's really a big issue in our society, right? Absolutely. And, and for me, when I hear that, it's really weird because I, I do have an ego at times, but when I hear people say those things about me, I really want to push back the voice that, that plays in my head is, mm, if you only knew, right? And like, I, I wonder if they knew about this perceived flaw or, or this fight I just had with my wife or this thing, would they still think that? Would they still lend me the same credibility, the same love even, you know? Yeah, that's, well, that's such a safety thing, right? Mm-hmm. Are these people going to love me? Are these people going to like me when they really find out who I am? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> and from what I found is like, actually, the more open, and the more vulnerable I am, and the more I say, look at me, I'm a messy human who took painkillers for years, like, the more people want to be part of this work, right? Um, and work that's really, I hope, like helping others. Um, yeah. And, and it's okay if they don't like you. Right? Yeah, and that's so true. Too. And that's hard, though. That's yes. hard. Well, for me, it's hard. <laughs> no, for me, too. As a, as a reforming people pleaser, it is extraordinarily difficult. Reforming people pleaser. That's a good one, yes. too. Yes. yes. I a reforming people pleaser. Yeah, <laughs> and I still feel that way. And it's like, especially like showing up the way I do. And I, so I also, you mentioned like I travel, I lead retreats, right? And so it's like, well, people don't show up to my retreat. That must mean they don't like me or I have to make people like me. So they sign up for my retreat as part of my livelihoods. There's all these questions unpacked about like lack and right, it's all that fear based of not being enough. And um, what do you understand is your next phase of growth, both professionally and personally? Yeah. So on a, on a personal level, um, I think he would be okay with me talking about this, but you know, my husband and I got married in college and we were kids. Like we were engaged like 19. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, we really grew up together, um, went through a lot together. Um, Aaron, for whatever reason, still don't really get it, but fell in love with me when I was that 98 pound girl in the shower on painkillers. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I mean, I know that he saw me before most, before anybody else could really see me. Right. Um, but I think as we're like shifting into this next stage of, you know, um, 30s and real adulthood, maybe whatever that means, quote unquote, <laughs> right. um, figuring out what we're doing next um, together, but also individually has been really challenging, actually. Um, and like for so long, our relationship was him taking care of me. Like I was almost I was almost dead for half of our relationship, you know, and, and that's. I don't say that without emotion. I just, at this point, like I'm able to acknowledge it and, 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 and say it just plainly because that's part of my story, but I, there's still a lot of emotion wrapped around it. Um, yeah. But I think at this point that I, you know, I'm healthy and my business is thriving um, and Aaron's figuring out what he wants to do. And then it's figuring out how we're going to do that together. And I think like, it's hard when, I'm such an independent entrepreneur having relationships. Um, I love relationships. I'm a, I'm a Taurus sun and moon. So if anyone knows astrology, like I love curling up in my bed and cuddling with people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
it's also when I travel a lot and I have this in business is just me. It, um, it's hard figuring that out. So personally, that's a lot of what we're working on right now. And I think we always will. Right. Um, but 12 years in, it's kind of like a new stage in life and we're almost new people or we're more, more ourselves perhaps. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so at the same time, um, my business is, is doing really well. And, um, you know, I'm actually launching into this new stage of training other people to lead retreats. Um, so I've had success in taking people all over the globe on yoga, you know, and wellness retreats. And, um, and, and so now I'm training other people who want to do it, which is really exciting and, and been successful so far. At the same time, understanding that travel is not accessible to everyone and, and dropping a thousand bucks to do yoga for a week is not accessible to most people. And so my work with Yoga Loka, my nonprofit work, being that as like kind of the foundation of what I see as my purpose and then leading retreats and traveling, it's like, how do I bridge the two? And that, that I think will for a while will be a big question that I'm trying to solve. And um, recently we were able to offer a scholarship to, um, to a woman, you know, who had, has also, you know, had quite a story and um, she's going to be coming to Hawaii with us next week. And we were able to offer her a full scholarship to come. And, um, and so doing more of that, um, sort of making it more equitable all the way around, um, you know, my, I see my work as sort of bridging spiritual practice and social justice, but I want to make sure that I'm doing that all the time, even when I'm on some fancy beach in Bali. <laughs> <So> <laughs> right. Possible. And, and so just owning that, that and trying to solve that question is, is really important for me. I'll affirm the, you know, the relationship piece is, is extraordinarily difficult. Brooke and I met when we were I don't know, 19 or 20. And so we have known each other and been together in some way, shape or form for a decade now. Um, and it, we're both at 31. It does feel like we're different people. Um, yeah. me, even me more so than her. I, I, I've gone from a evangelical conservative Jesus freak to a, a mystic social justice kind of uh, chaplain advocate, you know? So like I, I've changed in so many ways. Um, and so as, as we evolve as people, uh, whether we're becoming more of ourselves or, or becoming something new, you have to renegotiate what it means to be together constantly. Yeah, I love that. Renegotiate. Yeah, I have I have a lot of also as a tour, double Taurus, like I have a lot of mm -hmm. issues with compromise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like partnership is compromise, right? Mm -hmm. Or you know, maybe there's another word for it. I love that renegotiation mm -hmm. of the terms. Yeah. But I think like every day, Every day you wake up and you're making a conscious choice to do something. But I think if you're in a partnership, like it's a big conscious choice, like every morning, okay, I'm going to do this again. Like, okay, we're going to do life together again. Um, yeah. And I think I have a friend who, who does um, this work around like partnership and spiritual practice. And she always says like your biggest spiritual practice, if you're in a long-term partnership is your long-term partnership. Yeah. Like, that's where you're going to probably learn the most about yourself. You're going to be the most triggered you know, you're not going to show up as a healing guide all the time. You're going to be clunky and messy. Right. So true. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's accepting that first and then accepting that your partner is going to do that too. Right. And, and loving your partner as they are, especially if they're not on the same path you're on. And for us, that's been really challenging. Um, you know, um, that's actually the point of our podcast kind of is like Aaron and I are on very different paths. And so we kind of, 
you know, trying to figure out how to navigate that together. And so we interview people who maybe can provide us some guidance, but <laughs> it's not just about us. It's about yoga for transformative change, but, but it's been cool to build that together. So I think for us, it's been helpful to have these separate individual lives, right? Where I'm Liz and he's Aaron, but then also create something together, you know, build a life together, but also have this project that we can do together um, has been helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, uh, it sounds beautiful. I'm hoping to start a it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yes. Beautiful does not negate the hardships. Beautiful. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's also it's also messy too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and I think, you know, the you mentioned um the conscious choice to do life together. And I think it's also important um to recognize that it's necessary sometimes to make a conscious choice not to do life together, to do life to a lesser degree together. I think the important thing is the conscious choice. So I, I've witnessed couples, usually those older than me, just kind of reach a point of uh, stagnation where they, they really don't even like each other and want to be together. But for whatever reason, they don't, right. uh, separating is not an option, right? And so they just both seem miserable. And then that doesn't, I don't think we're meant to do life that way either, you know? And, and so I, I just think you need to be conscious about whatever you choose, just be conscious and intentional, you know? Totally. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no, same. And, and Aaron and I have had conversations around that too. Of like, mm-hmm. okay, are we doing this or are we not? And, yeah. and okay, right now we're going to do it. And, and there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of pain. And I think that's, that's what life is anyway. <laughs> and, yes. And doing it with somebody either. I think it both magnifies that and also minimizes that. Mm. Mm. Man. We could talk for hours. Uh, let me bring this to a close. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, so if people want to support you, if there may even be those that are listening that are interested in, in donating so that you can provide scholarships for others you know, to, to, to do these retreats, how can they best support you and do that? That would be great. Well, um, so Yoga Loka, we're here based in, um, in Gainesville. We're aggressive, you know, grassroots homegrown nonprofit here in Gainesville, Florida, but we're now also in other cities in Florida. So we're in St. Pete and we're in Miami and we have international partners in France and Costa Rica. And so we're growing and we're building a model that people can replicate. Um, and so to support that, you can certainly donate to um, our nonprofit yogaloga.org. Um, very easy. It's PayPal, but you can also send a cash or check if you want to. Um, and individually on my level, um, so on my website, lizgetman.com, um, the retreats tab um, at the top of that page is, is a gift of retreat program. And so um, you can provide any form of payment, um, you know, $5 even if you're interested. If, if you've ever gone on any sort of spiritual retreat um, or you understand the importance or you've experienced, you know, the importance like really sitting in stillness and contemplation and, and the power of connection and community. If that's ever impacted you in some way, whether it's through yoga practice or something else, and you're inspired to offer that to someone else from, you know, a marginalized population or someone whose voice has been oppressed, um, then feel free to click on that. And, and if you have the financial capability to donate, it would be so welcome. Um, and other than that, you can, just find me online and would be happy to connect. And um, our podcast is called Beyond Asana. So we uh, we like to say we move beyond the mat and beyond the BS. (laughs) So Mm. interested in learning more about yoga besides downward dog. (laughs) (laughs) I've been learning the past month and a half. 
feel free to tune in. You can find us anywhere. And um, those are kind of my big things, but um, I'm always learning more and doing, doing more, although trying to slow down. So if you have tips on slowing down, feel free to reach out and help me out too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like to leave or end every show with something um, tangible or, or possibly practical for the listeners to take with them in the week. And so is there a thought, a reflection, or even a simple practice that you would want to leave people with um, that, that touches on any of the themes we've, we've spoken about today? You know, I think I already mentioned sort of like my, my favorite quote and, um, you know, your own self-realization is the greatest service you can render the world. And I think that's really important to invest in yourself. Um, I think on, on the other end of that is remembering that we're all in this together. And I like to say, even though it's painful, it's more fun to do this together. So um, you can certainly be a renunciant on the spiritual path, but I think it's more fun to do it collectively. And I think there's a lot of issues we need to resolve as humans that need to be done collectively. And, you know, don't forget about your neighbor and don't forget about that person who maybe seems like they have it all together, but are really struggling inside, right? There's whatever that phrase is, like we're all battling our own demons. We're all going through some, we're all sitting in some form of poopy diaper. (laughs) (laughs) And so just remembering that we're all going through that is, is really hard. Um, but if you can come back to it, it'll help us be, you know, better citizens of the world. And, and, and I think we'll really have a chance at this idea of collective liberation, whatever that means to you, if we can remember that we belong to each other. So that would be it. Amen. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Truly honored and wasn't so bad. I only asked a few questions, right? <laughs> Thank you for listening to this interview with Liz Getman on the Invisible Truths podcast. I know it was much longer than normal. Uh, I was going to split it up into multiple episodes, but my conversation with Liz just flowed so fluidly, I didn't want to break that flow. And as a result, you got your first hour-long episode. Congratulations. If you're interested in learning how to support or join Liz in her work, you can find links in the episode description. I strongly encourage you to do so. If you couldn't tell from this interview, Liz is just a phenomenal human being. And so any way that you can partner with her would be greatly appreciated and an excellent investment. As always, please remember to leave a rating and subscribe to this podcast that encourages me to keep doing this work. And it helps you be notified of when new episodes come out. And anytime you leave a review, especially a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it helps make this podcast easier for other people that might be interested to find. So please do all of those. Once again, thanks for listening to episode 14 of Invisible Truths. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.